from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back. We're doing the Zoom version as we have been during the time of pandemic. Benefit of that is we got everybody here all the time. Cade Massey hosted with the whole crew. Shane Jensen over there, Center City, Philadelphia. Eric Bradlow out on the main line. Audie Weiner on the main line. The whole team. Good morning. Good afternoon, fellas. Hey, morning, Cade. Afternoon. How's it going? Good, good, good. Glad to be here. Good to see you. We're going to go for an hour as we usually do. We'll spend the first approximately half talking COVID-19 and the second half talking sports. Of course, they intermingle. These things are running together, which is why we keep on talking about all of them. This is the world we're living in. It's helpful. It's helpful to me to hear you guys talk through things and to kind of help make sense of things. So let's start with COVID-19. I'm always interested, gentlemen, always interested in what has caught your eye in the last week in the world of coronavirus. Well, before we get into the, you know, COVID and baseball issue, which is now all over the news. Um, you know, what it reminds me of is what Adi said, If maybe I think it was last week, which is if we go back in time to March and we think about what do we know about COVID now, maybe that we didn't know then, here are the two general statements I'm going to make, and then you guys refute me if you think the data doesn't support this. I think, number one, it's maybe more contagious than people originally thought, but its effects of seriousness, meaning hospitalization or death, is probably more bimodal than people thought. People may have thought about there being some like, you know, normal distribution centered at age 60, which tends to get really bad in the right tail and really fine in the left tail. But there probably are two humps, like there's a older person hump, but it gets really bad. And then it kind of siphons off. And then, you know, the young people, it's interesting because more and more data is starting to come out that maybe young people are not as immune as they had originally thought. But to me, the number one thing I think we're finding is that the contagious rate is, it's just, it's really contagious and it's really easy to get. And I I think just a a follow-up kind of question on his question is, uh, you know, like, like, I don't know what data I, I've, I would be interested in hearing you guys just like what study has there is there much known about kind of the core morbidity among the young people that are dying is it just is that like little like extra part of the population is that just you know just kind of a random coin flip of bad luck for with with a really slow low probability or are there actual kind of predictors of it right so i'd love to respond to you shane just want to throw out one response to eric and then get back to yours the thing about the 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 transmission rate i think when you were so early, like we we're talking about two to four R naughts, I think it's probably way higher than that. Way higher. But it's two to four in like symptoms R naughts, like exactly. people who get symptoms, but it's way higher in terms of people getting infected. And we're seeing that at when, you know, whole athletic teams are coming back to practice and you know, high school athletic teams and wherever they are, and they're testing 50 of them. Nobody has any symptoms and bam, 25 of them come back positive. And we just saw the Marlins come back with, with 14 positive tests. Um, and I guess, I, don't, I guess none of them have any symptoms. So there are two things, and both, yes, very contagious, way lower in IFR, infection fatality oh. rate, than we originally thought. Yeah, Adi, and, before, you, before you go into IFR, just real quickly, refresh us on r knots. All right, so r yeah, so basically, and we talked about this is we, um, regularly. So it's the, the number of new people that you will give it to. So if you have it and you give it to versus nobody. the number that versus your recovery. And so it's a population level thing. Yeah. So the number of new ones versus the ones that are coming off of it. Coming on. And it's an extremely important number because if it's less than one, it dies out. If it's greater than one, it grows until obviously too many people get infected and then it has to slow down. So RT is what the transmission reproducibility number is uh, at time T. And R0 is essentially with no precautions. That's when you say R0. R0. When the thing first hits us. What first happens? hits us. So we're all, everybody's doing things. So we're not seeing the high R0s. The RTs now don't match what we had early. Because even in the worst, even in the least interested places, they're still, I mean, they're still not going to restaurants in large volumes. Right. So while we're on this point, just real quickly, um, we've talked about this site a few times over the last month or two, RT Live. RT Live is a site that tries to estimate RTs for each state over time. And it's an imperfect science. There's errors associated with this. They recognize those errors. But it's very interesting to see differences across states and then how these things evolve over time. And it's a good one 
quick snapshot view at kind of the health of the country on this front and how it's changing over time. We talked about it a fair bit last week. One of the things that jumps out to me, and I'm, I'm, I apologize for being a little Texas-centric Texas when I go state level, but I'm shocked that right now RT Live reports the lowest RT in the country among states. Well, RT Live has been kind of confusing me over the last couple of weeks because, and I, I don't know if this is an example of a lag effect or, or what's happening, but a lot of the states that are obviously catching national attention right now for being in particularly bad situations, Florida, Texas, et cetera, actually are some of the ones with the lowest RT values right now. I think it may be that what's catching attention is hospitalizations and deaths, we had, such a, we had such a lag in deaths and people were kind of lulled into some complacency to some extent on deaths. And part, part of that's because it just so, took so long and it was taking longer at this stage of the infection around the country than it did early on because they were identifying them earlier. And so the lag between tests and death was longer. So I think one possible explanation, Shane, is the case count is actually turning over and is probably past the hump ahead of these these record totals right. of hospitalizations tra traumatic hospital situations to be honest and death rates isn't the the other thing that caught my eye isn't the biggest issue that we're facing right now which is you know it's the end of july which means schools about to come back for you know people age let's call it four slash five to 18 and here's the question which appears to be somewhat unknown although we have some data on this what's the transmission rate of people in that age group. And again, I think we'd all agree, um, it's a big end problem. So are, if kids go back to school, are there gonna be deaths of, of people 18 and under? Yes, there are. You just take big N, you multiply it by a small P, there's going to be some deaths. There's going to be some. The bigger issue is if, they're, if they can transmit it easily to each other, and if they can transmit it to their families when they come home, that's going to be a big challenge. So to me, that's the other thing that we're starting to get more and more data on, which is the young person to young person transmission rate and the young person to not as young a person transmission rate. Right. But not just parents, but teachers, obviously, as well. Teachers as well. Thank you. You know, the thing is that we have to recognize is that we're not the only country going through this. And while not every country is the same, there are similar countries. There are places that, that at least match certain portions, uh, segments of the United States. And they match them sort of similarly. So I think Israel's experience is actually quite interesting because they had an, a hammer down lockdown like you can't imagine for like six weeks. And they just got it down to a tiny, tiny trickle. And then they opened up everything. Um, and now, and actually quite similar to the United States, they told everyone to do X, Y, and Z. Nobody followed anything. Um, and, and they opened up schools. And one of the lessons that came out of that is schools were a tremendous source of transmission. And it rapidly flew, but only the high schools, nothing in the elementary schools and lower. It, and, and it seems, and this is an important lesson that I don't think we are assimilating, is that little kids, they get infected, but they don't seem to infect parents. And, and while I'm not saying it's impossible, the data seems to suggest, and there are other countries that have replicated this, that they don't seem to get it or give it. They get very, very low viral concentrations. I mean, I don't, maybe that's a hypothesis. I don't have enough data to. to, no, to and what about what um, about teachers in Israel? Now, so so teachers. So there have been a couple of teachers who have gotten it, but they they didn't get it from the kids. They got it from their other places. So what happened is, by the way, just so you'd like to know what's going on, is it it's uh, it's exploded all around the country, and um, they're just trying very hard to flatten the curve and keep the hospitalizations and deaths as low as possible. They've reinstituted a, a, a partial lockdown. Um, schools have stayed open after they closed. They closed them, then they quarantined only the high schools then they reopened them again now they're in summer summer vacation um so and sweden has had a very similar to experience to the united states where we had a, they had a big run-up um and then and then it's gone down to essentially nothing they've reopened all their schools and and um and they re don't report any any particular problem again it's like they open they have an outbreak they close and i'm just going to follow up eric because you there's almost no data that suggests that deaths for t kids 18 and under is anything to be substantially worried about. There's pr a tiniest handful of people in that age bracket who have died far, 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 so small that it's comparable to, you know, a really rare disease. So, so let me just address a couple issues you raised. One, the first one is more of a statistical issue, which I don't think we debate upon is in some sense, this is what we deal with all the time. How many bins are there in some sense? Well, it is continuous. 
Let's be honest. This people is what want, I was going to ask. Like, yeah. Little people, kids, big kids, give me something. Right. People well, want to discretize. No, the discretization I've seen is there sort of appears to be some sort of step function change between under puberty. 10. I think it's puberty. Yeah, or maybe puberty, but yeah. I've seen 10 and under. I've seen post 10. I've seen 14 and under, post 14, which would correspond to high school. Um, the second issue is, I, I was just thinking of the following. There's roughly, I may have the number wrong, but let's just say there's two to three million kids that go back to school. Even if the hospitalization and death rate is one in a thousand, well, that still puts us at way lower than that, Eric. That's the thing. It's way lower than that. The death rates for sure are way lower than that. And hospitalization, like just look online. If while you're sitting here, just pull up Philadelphia and they have it broken well, down by age. Were, I saw that there were 300 hospitalizations in Florida of kids under the age of 18. So that would not correspond, I would guess. I, I would quite honestly, I mean, that, I, 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 just I, I would like pay. to check that because I just was checking the, the Philadelphia numbers and their numbers are way lower than that as a group. And they have it all broken down. Well, no, I mean, I just, I'll tell you the numbers I read today that um, Florida has experienced a 23% growth in hospitalizations of kids under the age of 18, which just brought their numbers to over 300. Um, it could be that um, the number of people that have been infected, well, it depends which rate you want to consider. Conditional on being infected, whether you get hospitalized mm -hmm. or just the marginal rate. I don't know how many people under the age of 18 Florida has. Could it be 300,000? It could be. But I, I don't know that one in a thousand is as is, is low as you, is, is, I don't know that it's that much lower. And all I'm saying is if you multiply two million by that number, you still get a couple thousand. And again, I'm less worried. Yes, I have a children too. I'm worried about the couple of thousand, but I'm worried if those couple of thousand bring it home, then there's a challenge. And I'll also mention that, like, again, even if it is like, if, even if it's one in 10,000 or something like that, you know, it, 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 the, the, the kind of analog to a, a rare disease is a little bit weak in the sense that, you know, I, I, at least the, what's shaping the political conversation around this is that these are preventable deaths, right? Like, so even if it's only one in 10,000, even if it's only like that means like, you know, a hundred people across America, if it's something that like, you know, through shutting down again or just not allowing kids back in school, these deaths could have been prevented. That's going to, th there's a little bit of a different, you know, weight on them than, you know, your typical but, rare but there's disease. also a cost I, to closing school i mean <laughs> yeah that's the thing i agree with what you're saying comparing it to to rare diseases but the full calculus should include the additional risk incurred by leaving them home and i don't we don't have any of that sure that sure yeah that's that, right and, and i mean like that would be the right calculation it's just again as far as kind of you know things like mortality no, but I'm, I'm not sure what you. I'm including you, you. You would want to do some sort of excess death calculation. I agree, but what I'm, I'm look, I don't have a I don't have a strong position. I think it's so hard, and I'm not sufficiently informed. But if I'm going to start specking out the full equation, I'm going to say, look, you're going to put you're going to leave more kids at home for longer time in risky environments, in poor nutrition environments. Mm -hmm. So there are educational yeah. costs, yes, but there are yep. health costs, and they may not be as obvious or as observable as coronavirus related fatalities or hospitalizations but they're there now i don't know how we quantify them no no and i and again i i don't actually myself necessarily i'm not strongly opposed to schools reopening personally but i think i think the what what drives a lot of the political conversation is that you've got this kind of very obvious thing which is That's deaths right. on one side That's right. and the other counterfactual the counterfactual one is just so much more sort of nuanced and hard to estimate what the yep. kind of long-term or even short-term health consequences are to leaving kids at home yep 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 so but the, the, the one more thing on this age thing I and mean, these school districts were mostly group you know up to high school versus college and that's how it's talked about you're talking about a distinction between kids being much less um, contagious at some earlier stage such that you might have a policy within a school system that says we're going to open elementaries and junior highs but not high school or elementaries but not junior and high school and that's a that's a level of, this is hard enough anyway and now we're asking for another level of nuance but it does sound i mean if you're right about this being so different for as a as a function of age that would be the natural policy implication all right, so I did get some data. It looks like uh, Eric was not off mark. It might be about right. There, in our local township, uh, we have about a million people, about 800,000. We've had 32 hospitalizations of kids uh, 19 and under, um, 32 out of our, our approximately a million. I guess Florida has about 10 million, so that would about, about, is about the ratio. Um, 300 was about right. But, we, but here's the, the good news. There's zero deaths. 
And I would guess that Florida is in the, the one hand if they, if they were. If, if exactly one hand. They have yeah. five. Yeah, okay. Okay, so that my question is, okay, you say under 19, but I'm guessing based on the conversation we've been having that they're between 14 and 19. Yes, the vast, in fact, vast, and, vast and in fact the youngest ones tend to be between zero and five. So it, it tends to look like... But I think now, I now, if I'm going to push back on this, I would say right now in the summertime without school, who's actually socializing? They're not the nine-year-olds. They are. Oh, the, no, you're right. It's the, the teenagers. Oh, you and they are. <laughs> so, so, Adi, is there any, do you have get any sense? But again, remember my point was that um, I was thinking A, nationwide, mm-hmm. um, and B, you know, I'm thinking more back to Shane's point of, of course, everyone deeply cares about the deaths of children, but how many excess deaths are we talking about of teachers, parents, grandparents, et cetera? that are gonna be the result of, because you just talked about deaths. And so I just mentioned Florida has roughly 300, but if that's true, how many people get the virus if 300, sorry, if 300 are hospitalized, how many people then are likely to have gotten the virus? And then I'll use your RT of four slash five, how many people are they infecting? And by the way, how many people have, it's also how many people have yet to be infected? And so it isn't. So the question becomes: Is this bringing it to an entirely new population of people that are not the people that have already been infected before? And my belief is there probably is because back to Kate's point about socioeconomic status, people that are wealthier probably have been able to keep their kids out of school, are more likely to have homeschooling, etc. If more people go back to school it's probably going to affect wealthier populations more so than it has been in the past is all I'm commenting on. No doubt. So guys, I want to talk about another side of the whole thing. And that is the, the immunization side of it. I I didn't know that our friends over at good judgment were running a board on this, but the good judgment project, which is the Phil Tetlock offshoot from some of their contests, very highly regarded. This is a group of, they're well known now for being, for having some super forecasters. Tetlock's had a, kind of a half a career doing, um, doing this kind of research on how we can improve forecasts. And they, they have a board that tracks, um, tracks expectations of the super forecasters, the, the forecasts of the super forecasters <laughs> for when an immunization, a vaccine will be available. And it's, and it's, and this is some good news I'm trying to share here. And so what I'm trying to set up is these guys have a good reputation. This is a really hard thing to forecast. There's no guarantee, of course, but this is a good signal. This is an important signal to pay attention. Before you give us the date, before you give us the, I just want to be clear, is available mean the, the date of the first injection or the day that Eric Bradlow or Shane Jensen or Kate Maserati Weiner gets the injection? Right. They, they, right. They, they are very precise in these, in, these, in these markets. And so what they say is, well, um, when will enough doses of an FDA approved COVID-19 vaccine or vaccines to inoculate 25 million people be distributed in the U.S.? Okay. That's pretty darn precise. That's pretty darn precise. All right, do we get to do we all get to vote first? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's and let's give hear. our thought processes. Yeah. So they've been tracking this since late April. Um, well, let me discretize the the event space for you, so you can you can give me a probability for these things. One is before October 1, 2020. All right. So that's the next three months. Um, one is between the first of October and the end of March. Another is between. April 1st next year and September 30th next year. And then between October 1st next year and March the following year, 2022. And then not before April 1, 2022. I'm going to tell you that last category, you know, sometime after April 1, 2022 has never had much support. So we're going to ignore that one. You've got four categories. You might just say, what do you think is most likely? Or you might pick one and say, here's a probability. Should we all try to think about it in our heads here? I'll go, I'll, I'll go first. I mean, if you'd like. I mean, let me just focus my answer so that I know it won't be okay. influenced by you. Okay, right. I'm good. All right. So <laughs> if, let's take the first bin, which is, I think was before October 1st of this year. I'm putting a, even if the vaccine were ready, they're just doing phase three trials now. I'm going to put less than 1% probability on that. Hey, by the way, guys, I'm going to correct myself. I made a mistake here. This, the, 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 the category that had no support from the beginning was before October 1st this year. That's the hard zero. All right. Okay. 
So, uh, can, so can I then can I then the respond? Long, and I, so the long term pessimistic, not before April one, twenty twenty two, actually had some very decent support early on. It's faded some. I'll give you that hint, but that's still active. Okay. Uh, can I jump in on, on at least that first category? First thing, first lesson I know about betting and putting probabilities on things is never put a zero on anything. <laughs> and in fact, this one, when it comes to this virus and everything that we've known about it and how different it's been, this suggests every, anything more uncertainty. So no, I'm going to put in, just to be iconoclastic, 2% on that first bin. <laughs> okay. No, no, but here's the thing, Adi. Here's the, here's the reason why I put, I said less than 1%. I'm happy to put zero. Uh, Kate's at 25 million doses. And so those doses would have, first of all, it's going to take the phase, let's talk about the phase three trial. Shane knows infinitely more about this than I do. The injections are four weeks apart. Let's start with that. So already it's, we're September one before the group gets injected the second time. They have to then track them over time to actually see whether they get COVID or not. The data has to be analyzed. You didn't have to get the drug. You'd have to make 25 million doses, which I know they're accelerating now. And then you would have to decide how much to give people and distribute it nationwide. So I, I'm putting that number. Well, it's a long shot, but I, I don't think that to put it at essentially zero rec doesn't recognize a couple of things could happen. So for example, it is spreading rapidly and quickly through lots of the world. That means that whoever judiciously they pick their 30,000 people, I think Moderna's trials is, is roping in 30,000 individuals. Correct. And I don't know if they're challenge bound. I don't think they're challenge. Shane has talked about that before where they actually agree to be infected. But if we get enough people that actually don't turn up the virus, that is a low, low probability event. But if that such a thing happens, we're going to see a massive acceleration because okay, too much so money is at stake. Yeah, I think it's a good point. But I do want to say that the, the, the markets, the super forecaster markets from good judgment, have that at 1%. I think the notable thing is it's been at 1% since April. That's, I want to give these mm -hmm. guys credit for being 1% since April. They've never thought it was viable. Okay, so let's move on to the other and give us a kind of a quick partition across the other four spaces, which are kind of six-month blocks. You can think about it. Six-month blocks beginning, uh, beginning, what is that, October, what did I say? Yeah, October to March and then March yeah. to October, basically, or October yeah. to April. I would go... Um, and you, by the way, you didn't say effective. You just said FDA approved. That's right. And so the and government's going to want to push this out, whether it works or not. That's right. So I'm going to go 50, 40, 10 on the next three bins. Okay. 50, 40, 10 is... Um, yeah, okay. before yeah. before Eric said anything, I mean, basically, I'm at like less than 1% on the our, 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 our immediate bin. Um 10% sounds about right to me on that, like, kind of like, we just don't get it by 2022, Ben. Um, and then, yeah, split the rest evenly between, you know, the the, the couple in middle bins get, like, all the rest, basically, 45, 45. Or so, so my turn. Give it to me again, Shane. Uh, less than 1%, 45%, uh, 45%, uh, 9 point whatever percent. All right, so the, that last one is, what's the cutoff date for the last one? The last one, y'all are kind of ignoring the last one, which is uh, um, not before April 1, 2022. Oh, no, April that was my 9%. That's He did. He gave it. That's way out. So we have four bins if you include the first one. So I'm going to stick with my 2% on that first one because I want to be you know, infinitely higher than those who said zero and at least twice as high as those who said once 1%. Because if this is a log payoff, I don't know. I can I'm get happy to lose payoff. this payoff to you, <laughs> right. Audie. That, I'm, I'm just I'm putting 1% okay of my wealth in right in there. And uh, if I get a good, you know, two to one payout on it, that could be quite valuable. Um, so we can do Kelly, Kelly gam gambling on this. Op, all right. So anyway, so I'm being technical here, but I I'm definitely want to put a little bit more on that high end um, because 25 million, there's a lot of safety issues with vaccines that I think are gonna be a big concern. I heard a little bit of inside scoop on the Moderna vaccine. It seems to stimulate a very strong immune response, which you think is good, right? Except that no, if it makes you really sick by getting the vaccine, you may not get that many people me, wanting to take it. Let me just interrupt for one second, Adi, because your point is a very good one, just quickly. It might be the same way we're gonna talk about when we talk about baseball after the break. They may start vaccinating people and they may have to stop. Exactly, because there's a lot not known and drilling that. So I'm going to go two, um, and then I'm going to just split roughly one third into each of the three bins. Okay. You're putting so, much more than you, either, either you did. Yeah, I, you're you're I'm, saying I'm, more uncertain. You just say there's so much uncertainty. Flattening out, yeah. So I want to acknowledge first that the that the good judgment folks had had one percent on the earliest bin. Just to be clear, they've had this since April. For the longest time, the leading bin was the latest bin, mm -hmm. not before April one, twenty twenty two. From 
this is pushing 50% from mm -hmm. April through May, 50% likely not to see it for two years. And it remained the leader up until the middle of June. So that's just, I think, really remarkable and sobering. Now, though, this is how good the news has become. Now, though, the chance of our not seeing a, a 25 million dose vaccination approved by FDA and distributed in the U.S. has dropped. They have it dropped all the way down to 8%. And it's the least likely of the four bins um, that, aren't, that we're not living in right now. Okay, so that's how that has evolved. The, the leader, the one that took over the leader was between April and September next year. And that was the leader for a good month or so from mid-June to mid-July. And then rising from the bottom and making steady, like, like, a, like, a, like a horse in the derby, making steady progress. And in the last two weeks, taking over the lead is the next six months after the one we're in right now, the October to, to March. And um, they have that right now at uh, 30, at 44%. Today's forecast is 44%. So it's sneaking up to, to even odds that we'll see that kind of dis distribution in the six months um, beginning well, October. You, you know, Kate, my take on that is that if, if, it, if we do get it, it's going to be kind of on that early side. But if we don't get it, it's going to be on the late side. Oh, because it'll say because there are problems. And so, yeah, you're going to see, I mean, this is most of these things die in this, in this round, right? In the, in the effective and the, and the issue with side effects, you know, the whole point of a vaccine is to stimulate a re immune response equivalent to getting the, the disease. You got to get that just right. <laughs> and I want to stand by my prediction, which is they may start distributing doses and have to stop. Well, see, and by the way, Eric, your numbers were real close to what the super forecasters numbers are. So they had 44% on um, between October and April and then 36% on the other side of that 10%. Yep. You know, and down to, and down to that eight. All right, guys, that's been um, a helpful COVID-19 discussion. Helpful to me anyway. Appreciate it. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Zoom edition, as we've been doing in the pandemic, we're doing hour long shows live with the whole crew here. Kate Massey, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. In the first half hour, we talked COVID-19 uh, in, in particular, and now we want to expand the conversation. We can't talk sports without it, but we can talk sports. Let's talk some sports. Sadly, the leading story today, as we tape Monday afternoon, is that the Marlins, half the squad is, half the starting squad is uh, down with coronavirus. They're canceling games right and left. There's a lot of concern that MLB could not get out of their first weekend without this problem. What's your reaction, guys? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> I don't know what all to right, say. Well, that's a reaction. I mean, if, I mean, by the way, I mean, there are two reactions. First of all, it was amazing to see baseball start. It was extraordinary. I had a fantastic time. So on the cer certain level, the tremendous disappointment of seeing the, have the season kind of just disappear on me is so tragic. And of course, my initial reaction is, well, just cut the Marlins out of the, out of the season. Let's move <laughs> on, right? Um, I mean, that seems a little bit callous, but whatever. I mean, what well, are they've they long been the leading on? candidate for contraction. We can just kind of do that. That's you right. Know, right they now. are a leading candidate. For They're supposed to have a robustness plan here. I mean, the league has this taxi squad. I mean, in mm -hmm. theory, they can fold some guys in and keep going, right? And we're about to find out whether that's going to work at this well, level. Well, their rosters, I believe, are 30-man are rosters, but they have a, a, a standby 30 um, exactly. on the side. So they potentially could pull this off. Um, and the Marlins most, do have probably are the, one of the most robust to this in that their taxi squad is probably a little closer in actual performance. <laughs> yeah, right, there really isn't much difference. Teams. Although okay. Philly seemed to be, uh, would, would disagree after getting crushed by them in a couple of games. Um, so I'm terrified, you know, terrified. We, again, it emphasizes how unbelievably contagious it was. Apparently they were stuck in the dugout and there was terrible rain and everyone was really on top of each other. They had been on a bunch of flights. Um, so all the kind of the protocols kind of fell by the wayside and the fact that they were in the South and in Florida and in Atlanta, right before these are the two places where parts of the country where the virus is spread, it has been spreading really quite rapidly. Um, so it's disappointment to hear. I'd love to see them keep playing, but I'm, I'm a little bit um, doubtful at this point. You're, you're, you're so disappointed because you think this, this augurs poorly for what happens next. That's what you're saying. It's like, That's this, is, what I'm this saying. probably means we're not going to be able to get through the season and let's just expand the, 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 the pessimism and say that might mean other sports are going to get through the season, right? If baseball can't pull it off, what does football, well, what chances football? Basketball's in a bubble, so. Basketball and, and hockey's in a bubble. And I kind of wish baseball maybe had tried that too. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, I, right. I guess it's good that they're experimenting with different strategies for our kind of general knowledge. But I do think the, you know, a, I, I feel a little bit more secure, at least that I don't think the kind of 
you know, even if this ends up being kind of a negative outcome for baseball, that it's necessarily predictive of what would happen in hockey or, or NBA. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think it's just a shame to it's just a reinforcement of as far obviously baseball, they're traveling between cities. We know that. Uh, second, obviously, I think they're still seeing their families, right? So when they're staying in their home city, they're still at home. So I, if that's true, I don't know why anybody would have thought that this wouldn't happen. I mean, it's so different than the NBA and the NHL where they're in a bubble. But, and so, but, Okay, Eric, but you're, you've been optimistic about football for a while, which is this exact situation with more people. And I'm, I've always been concerned that your optimism about football is more because what you want. What I was optimistic about was that because of the immense popularity and money involved, that all of the sports would start. Now, whether they're actually going to finish, I have I had. You know, do you want me to go back and revisit the forecast? The, yeah, the event was back. specified as will there be a championship, um, a meaningful championship that's not – fully specified of course i thought my recollection this is obviously bad memory was that i was certainly no higher (laughs) and lower than all of you on most of the sports if not all of the sports on whether there'd be a championship but maybe i'm having a this is why we write things down this is all right let's write them down but look on the on the good news hockey has like thousands of tests they just reported that they went an entire week which is like five tests per player per per week with no positives so this is a this is a the bubble system so far is working for the NHL. The NBA, of course, has had I think some. NBA had the same. They had they had very good results post bubble, right? And again, experimentation wise, you know, I, I, they're not setting this up to like you know as 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 part of a a great plan to experiment with different conditions. But it will be interesting to compare the NHL and the NBA because we're talking about bubbles in areas that have very low prevalence versus bubbles, you know, how protective is that bubble? Well, they put it, you know, the NBA one, they put in Orlando. So that's going to really test it out. I think. Right. Well, look, let's right. also right. talk about that. There was baseball played and something, a couple of shocking things happened to me. Uh, so I happened during the season. I mean, it's only three games old and I'm surprised no team is undefeated. That is unusual. Yeah. That is. What, what, what are the chances guys? 30 teams play three games. What are the chances? Give me the minus two. I don't know. Uh, it's it's not unlikely. It's but it's oh, not. Let's go. Can we do a little bit of math like the following? <laughs> let's just say each game is 50 50. Yeah, so there's a one eighth chance that someone's going to one half times a half times a half that someone's going to win all three. And there were 15 such series. Mm-hmm. So the expected number should be somewhere around two. Right. Yep. And That's why I said either the minus two. About, so. I mean, if it were, <laughs> the, the standard deviation about root two. So yeah. it's rare, but hold on, hold on. Give us, give us that slow. E to the minus two. Hold on, give on is, is the way I'm guessing it. So what Eric calculated is the mean of the Poisson, which is two, and then the standard deviation of the plot time is root two. But if you want the probability of zero, you just go e to the minus two, and that's about one over nine, roughly, mm-hmm. not a little okay. more than one over nine. So okay. it's it's unlikely, but it's not like extraordinary, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. It just seemed very stark that nobody uh, yeah. swept the original. And then, of course, there's some individual things that I noticed during the game. I actually put one in the rundown, and I want to see if you guys can guess. So, obviously, I'm not a great fan, but uh, my cousins in Tampa are big Tampa Bay fans, the Rays. Mm-hmm. And just to give you a situation, I'd like to have your assessment of P win. And I know the answer. So, the Rays were down 4-2 in the bottom of the ninth, two outs, no one on. So what do you think their win probability is? I'll just tell you, by the way, whether this biases you or not, they did win the game. And they won the game. So so they're down two outs, bottom of the ninth, four to two, no one on. It's about 2%, 2 to 3%. I would put 5%. You say two outs? There are two outs down two runs? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that makes it a lot lower. So it's, I would say it's in the neighborhood of, uh, well, a walk and a homer is uh, approximately one third times a homer or one tenth. So it's, it's gotta be in the between at least four to 5%. So Mm. I'm going to go about 5%. So that's great approximation. The the number they reported, at least on StatCast was one and a half percent. That was the number they reported. Right. Um, Because I would would just send it to a tie mine and then it'd have to go extra innings, but. Well, that could be, that could cut it. I would cut it there. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually they came back and won. Um, Mm -hmm. The other thing that struck me was, um, again, I typed this in the rundown. The Yankees were up 3-2 in the ninth. The Nationals had a man on second with no outs. The guy tried to steal third and was thrown out. Unbelievably stupid. Yeah. 
Yeah, because so I, I'm happy to talk about it, but you want to talk about why that's an I agree I with you. You know, you know, well, let me just say the old lore in baseball, for those of you that aren't old curmudgeons like Adi and I, you never make the first out at third base. Ugh. You know, I'll, I'll throw another one on, and this is more sabermetrics. You never make the first out at second base. The mm. enormous value of getting – baseball's a cumulative game, and people don't realize that getting three outs is, is as much more than, than three times the value of having one out. That's, the, that's the, an interesting nonlinearity in baseball. And taking away an out cuts, away your, cuts your chances. Okay, hold on, hold on. This is, this is an interesting thing you've just said, and unpack it for us a little bit. So the idea in baseball is you need, you need to move those runners over, right? So and you have to have chances to, to, to – first you get some on, and then you get some more, and then you move them around. And having three opportunities, think about it in football. Imagine you, you took away a down to get to that, to, uh, to get to the, to the, to the first yard, first down, the 10 marker. Yeah. It's much, much harder. And it goes, it goes, it goes non-linearly. And that's the trick. It's not equally in proportional and extra. Imagine in football, if we had an extra down and actually, actually, I think that's what they talk about when you have an, when you know ahead of time, you're going to go for it on fourth down is it changes the whole style of play and it makes you much more productive. And, and what's that's the, what happens. What's in the baseball. intuition? What's the intuition for that nonlinearity? Like that, uh, that you're saying basically that an extra down or an extra out adds more value than the one before. Yeah. So the way I like to give it, think about this. Imagine you had 27 one out innings. How many runs would you score compared to one 27 out inning? Mm-hmm. And one 27 out inning would score dozen runs easy because mm-hmm. you would just move them on. And then you, anytime you get a hit, you'd, you'd produce a run. Mm-hmm. Because there'd always be people on base. Yeah, yeah um, you, but if you had one out in- innings, you well, would be almost fewer chances to strand runners that way. That's you right. have twenty-seven chances mm-hmm. to strand runners versus one chance to strand runners. That's right. And, and so, speaking of the kind of opportunities specific to that one of like being on second base and choosing to steal third with no outs, the number of kind of you know, I mean, the the I, the gain of like a successful thing like that is there's a few scenarios that can happen, like a sacrifice fly, yeah. where you would score that run if the man was on third, but not score that run if the man was on second. But That's the right. vast majority of the scenarios where that man score that that runner scores, he'll be able to score from second or third, basically either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the kind of gain there is only these like few differences the probability of you know you're gaining a a small probability of things like sacrifice flies in these various scenarios where it would make a difference but of course that counter you know it's not a high probability event to steal a base and so that's the counterbalance okay this all makes great sense to me what i'm confused by is that the rays did it the rays are supposed to be one of the most this was the nationals this was the national and nationals are also sophisticated i mean i know about the nationals enough to tell you that what goes on in the analytics booth is not necessarily what the coaches are doing. And the biggest difficulty in analytics in, in all sports, but yeah, baseball is is, sports. Is still, is getting that message down to the field. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, so just to finish up the conversation, it's not like never, you should never run. If you have about a 90% chance of success, it might add value. But that's extraordinarily high. Even Ricky Henderson, the great base dealer, was averaged about 75%. A very selective base dealer like Mike Trout might do 80%. Hey, Adi, real quickly, would you be accept, would you accept someone saying, well, look, okay, so Ricky was 75 across all situations. What if we could, what if we could note something about this situation against that pitcher or he could get a lead or he had noticed something and would you allow them to say, we thought we had 90% in that moment? I wouldn't because I would shrink back to the mean more than they do. So I find that the, 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 practitioners value that context more than the data differently does. So a good compromise is to take the mean, take what they're saying and just meet yourselves halfway. So they would have to be about 95% before I'd be, I'd let them go with that. Okay. So I think this is really, really interesting because this is exactly the conversation you have all the time. And it's in baseball, but it's other, Mm -hmm. in other sports as well. The analytics, the base rates say one thing, and then the practitioner wants to contextualize because all they see is context. Like what about in this situation? What about the wind? What about the defense? What about the, all that stuff. And Audie's giving us a very simple heuristic that says like, don't take it away from them altogether, but blend that with the base rate. And as a heuristic, you might just say, we're going to go half with what you believe you see with your eyes. And we're going to go half with the base rate. Let me just comment on a couple things also, just to remind everybody, um, which one is a faster throw? And I'm, I, I'm a baseball guy. Which one is a faster throw? Is it, sorry, which one's a faster throw, a throw to third base or throw to second? 
Third base. Third. Much faster. This was stealing third. Yeah. Yeah. That's so why it's from, really hard. <laughs> let's also remember, this was stealing them out. I will say. It's both less distance and a better sight line on the Correct. Floor. Now, let me also comment on what actually happened. I didn't tell you. The guy actually, we could debate it. He sort of beat the throw to third. He came off the base and he was tagged out. Oh, so let wow. Me just, let me just say, by the way, it makes it even more painful Jeez, happy for me, painful. but painful if you're a Nationals fan. Right, right, right. So uh, anything else in baseball stand out to you? Just as a, as, a, as a distant observer, the injuries are something that stands out to me, especially to some of these number one pitchers. So Verlander, uh, Kershaw, um, you hate to see these Every guys year. go down so early. Every year. Is that right? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, a couple a couple season ending or season threatening injuries in the first few weeks of baseball, uh that that is that's something that actually does seem very familiar. Okay. Okay. I, I um, just I'll throw this out. Stan, I mean, you, you could one. ask Chris Sale who went down kind of through during yeah. spring training as well. Yeah, so the one observation I made which I enjoyed was Stanton setting the the, the second highest hardest hit ball in baseball history in the stat I cast. I saw era. that. I saw yeah. that. This is a 484 foot home run. Is that yeah, right? He, he went tossed off it like out 100... at 121.5. Did you also see who had the top five all time, or at least since they've been measuring it? They were all by Stanton and Judge. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. <laughs> That's absurd. You, you, Eric has such a smile on his face as he says that. This yeah, the no, biggest it, little kid smile came over his face as he said that. <laughs> I, I watched the Yankee, all Yankee games this week, and I'm going to tell you, that's a fun team to watch. Because I'm going to tell you what happened. This is the other thing. The reason it was so fun is the game I just mentioned, the one that they won 3-2. to two, They really had no right in winning that game. Yep. In other words, they were outpitched, they were outhit, and then, you know, a couple of guys banged some home runs, and, you know, there, there it is. is. Uh, it also made me think of another statistical question, which is, you know, people talk about what's called protection in the lineup. You know, so let's talk, let's imagine, we all agree the, the Marlins may not be the best team in baseball right now. Let's say you removed Aaron Judge or Giancarlo Stanton from the Yankees and you placed, and this is the classic, well, Judge, of course, has got Hicks, he's got Stanton, he's got Murderer's Row behind him. How could you try to think about estimating the effect of that protection? You know, people always remember, you know, Ruth and Gehrig, three and four. That's why their numbers were three and four. That's right. You know, I mean, is this a, are you asking specifically about the Yankees? Because you just take no, a I bunch think of scrubs about the from other teams and suddenly they're like MVPs once they get to the Yankees. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, you mean like Luke Voigt and uh, – Or De- LeMahieu or LeMahieu. like Urshela, or I mean, I could keep list- – I could Urshela, basically list Urshela, about Urshela, half yeah. of your current players. Imagine someone wanted Troutman or Troutman or whatever. Yeah, I was just saying, suppose someone wanted to measure interaction <laughs> effects between players or what we call protection in baseball – could one just do it through historical data or would you just be so worried about, you know, whether it's endogeneity or something else? Cause you know, the lineup's constructed that way. Could you just grab somebody or could you all, could you just, I mean, what, what, what also helps, I think almost in this analysis is the, you know, kind of to the, I mean, or batting orders aren't exactly randomized. Right. But, but there is a lot of variation there, right. You can kind of like you, you, you can control for kind of player quality by just looking at different orderings and stuff like that. I, I know a little bit about this because I actually tried to survey some of the uh, teams about what they think of this. And the first, and I can tell you there's a definite divergence in what the analytics people say. The analytics people say it doesn't seem to matter. And they don't ask, they basically tell teams to just not worry about it. And this matters in ba- data acquisition. So the idea would be, let's look at another a, a player from another team, see how they performed in one season. And if they didn't have anyone ba- in front of them protecting them or behind them, then you might expect them when they come to your team where they have line of protection, that they'll do much better. And the analysts seem to say that that's ignorable. Um, I will say that the, the actual data on that would leave this question open, not, not decided. So it could yeah. be a place for a decent amount of research. I mean, I, I feel like at least anecdotally, I mean, like things like walks, things that are kind of more controllable, you know, like the kind of less random sort of like things, you know, things like intentional walks and stuff like that. That's my, that my, there must be effects of, of you know, ordering or, or having somebody behind you that really can hit on those, right? Seems like it. Seems, seems mighty reasonable. You know that yeah. you've talked to pitchers, they would talk about it. So it, I think it's an interesting question. Like, can you find it in the data? Eric's basically asking, can you find it in the data in right. the, without running the experiments? Um, interesting. Guys, I want to ask a, a, a different sport question because I think one of the bigger pieces of news about sports in the last week came up 
and it's your team, Adi. It's the, your adopted yeah. NFL team, the it's New York not, Jets. It, this is my from oh, which one? I know, the, I know. The, yeah. the Jamal Adams trade. Yeah. So their their safety out of LSU, young guy, big up and coming star, gets um, you know, gets get gets sideways with management, wants to trade. They finally just trade him. And the Seahawks give two number one picks, number one mm-hmm. pick the next couple of years, and then also they there's a there's a there's a player in there, and then there's a third round there's, pick. A, there's a third round pick, or they're trading a couple of picks, or something like that. It's a it's an enormous cost that the Seahawks are are, are paying to get Adams. So, what do you think about this trade? Well, I think it's first of all, I think it's great just to have the Jets in the news in, in a way that's not positive and ne- negative. Um, yeah. Secondly, listen, I've been I, what I've learned from this is from my, our, our 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 PFF, uh, you know, the Twitter community that we know. Mike Salfino loves this trade. I, Salfino, I love, big Jets fan. Big I love Jets that he fan. loves the Jets, and I love that no matter no matter how no matter what happens, he's he's right there with Darnold the whole time. He's the greatest quarterback ever. That's not that's not a fanboy thing to say, but anyway, he's. <laughs> says it all the time and it makes me happy um and he thinks this is an was a, a solid a trade for the for the jets and all a right. d minus or something or d plus for, yeah, this, right. for the seahawks uh, you know the argument would be is what is the i think jamal adams what number was he in the draft seven or where was he when he came up i, I don't i don't know I, I and no has idea. he outperformed or underperformed what has happened i think he's getting close to his end of his end of his first contract so the jets would have to sign him so it's not Over, like he's, I, I mean, he, I, no, he's I think lived he, up to his billing. He's been so excellent yeah. that you have to say he's even overperformed expectations, yes. even with yeah. high expectations. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, from the Jets' perspective, they need more rather than one, and so Jets need right. shots at the at this at the, at the the draw, right? You know, what do you what do you say? Uh, what's your what's your expression, Kate? You want to have uh, you know horses in the race, or what is it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. More 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 draws in the lottery. Draws in the lottery, and so for the Jets, they need those extra extra chances because that's sixth the only overall. Way can... By the way, sixth overall pick. Okay. They dealt the sixth overall pick in 2017, so he's played he's played three years. Well, let me ask you a question then, Kate. So two questions. So let's imagine I could do the following trade for you right now, okay? So I have the sixth pick in the draft. Would you give me, I'm projecting where the Seahawks might end up. Would you give me the 26th pick this year and the 26th pick next year for the six, for the number six? So the 26th pick next year is is like a second round pick this year, essentially. It's like kind of the heuristic way to think about it, given the discount rate in the markets. And so you're talking about a first and a second this year for the number six. I don't think that's a great trade for the number six pick. Because to it's me, not, that's the way, I mean, just you're on not, that pure you're, basis, you're, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it, of course, is what Shane said, which is, well, he's the number six pick with revealed data. Yeah, exactly. He's better than your number average number six pick, because we already know he's already an all pro. But then the third way to look at it, which could counter all of that, is, yeah, but he's a safety man. Yeah, Wait, exactly. Safety, which means what? What does that mean? Well, if, if in positional value, safeties are pretty far down the list across mm-hmm. the league. I mean, all average, all defenses, it's pretty far down. So you've got the quarterbacks in their own tier. You've got kind of a, a, a pass rusher, pass catcher tier. Then you have – you know, a, an interior lineman, offensive tackle tier, and then down near the bottom you have safeties, off-ball linebackers, and maybe all the way at the bottom you have running backs. So it's pretty far down. Now, I will say this. More and more people are talking about multiplicity, and they want players who can do different things because they stress defenses and they preserve optionality for the team, whether it's offense or defense. And so you need these players who, who can play, for example, strong against the run and cover. You can, you can play close to the line of scrimmage. You can blitz, which is Jamal Adams' kind of specialty, but also carry the tight end down the seam, that kind of thing. If you, those players are few and far between, and they deliver a lot of options to the defensive coordinator. And the people who justify this trade say that Jamal Adams is the rare animal that can do that kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of, I guess I'm, I'm on the side of maybe – not thinking this is such a bad trade for Seattle, although I do think the New York Jets got a very impressive haul, especially given he was kind of disgruntled. Like with the entire league kind of right. knowing that they right. had to make a trade. Right. Uh, the fact that they got such a haul, I think, is extra impressive. Um, but from Seattle's perspective, I do think Jamal Adams does have a skill set that is unique and, you know, kind of more adaptable to kind of like different looks and different defenses that I think, you know, it, he kind of has ex, extra value beyond what you would sort of typically assign to a safety. 
And I just want to kind of echo the distinction that Eric made too, that, you know, when you do these kind of like draft values, you're, you're typically talking about an unrealized slot. That's right. What, That's what, right. what is the sixth pick work when you don't, you, you know, whereas this is a sixth, right. you know, like, like a number one pick has a certain value, a number one pick that I told you will work out. hundred percent. I mean, there's how no, much value do I mean, that has, you know, no, incredible amounts of value. There's no question about that. On the other hand, those picks before they're realized are much cheaper. Like re- yeah, that's right. the best, the most, the most yeah. advantageous, guy to have in the nfl is a rookie a successful rookie on his first contract because they're so far below their value and, and so, I, I will say i i think there's a chance that this trade actually works out for both teams because there are i think they're just in very different kind of phases of of, of kind of you know like where they're at as teams yeah right? like adi said new york needs a the jets need a lot of players well i'm skeptical on the seahawks because i'm just skeptical about their regime overall right now no that's you know, right I, I mean they're just but, too i mean but it is at least, I, I, yes, for, I also am skeptical that they will be able to kind of execute their master plan. But I, I, I'm, I do agree that Seattle is more in a win now kind of mode with Russell Wilson. Okay, see, still I think this is prime. a wrong, I think this is, it's bad to be in win now mode. Because when Adi said the Jets aren't a player away, my mental thought was no team is a player away. This, this is a trap that teams get into mm-hmm. and they start trading away too much. Now, if you're the saints and you've got breeze for like, what seems like another 15 minutes, maybe, I mean, yeah. Russ, I can't feel no sympathy for the Seahawks and what they're barely, you know, they only have Russell Wilson for a little while. They're blowing Russell Wilson's prime right now, by the way, they're utilizing him. Oh okay. no, that's, that, I mean, that's, come that's, on. That's... That's certainly true. And I mean, you know, sympathy is not one of the emotions I feel with regards to Seahawks ever, basically. But, um, you know, that regime, that, that kind of strategy changes. I mean, I, I agree, like, needs to be coupled, but there is at least some hope that that would, you, you know, those are almost like two decoupled issues yeah, with the can Seahawks. I, can, I, can we ask, so I'm tempted to just view this trade as great for the Jets. Is it great for, is, let's look at it from the other side. What is this, from the Seahawks perspective, no, they gave up a safety and got a no, better safety. No, it's right? terrible. Is that much better for them? And they no, gave up. Terrible. Look, what I, you know, the, this all hinges on what's the value of an elite player with flexible talents. And, yeah. and you know, Carroll's a defensive back genius and he can do all these things with it. If that's true, if he can turn that in, but he, he needs to turn him into like as valuable a player as a quarterback to make this thing work out. Like a, like a top quarterback. I agree. I agree too. That was the, that was exactly the scenario I was asking was how much, where in the draft, what's the equivalent value he would have to be to make this trade reasonable. And you've given us an assessment. He'd have to be like a top flight top quarterback QB that actually that much out. value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There <laughs> seems to be a contradiction, Cade, though. You seem to be saying that, that safeties are never worth drafting in the sixth or seventh in the draft. They're just it's not, not a contradiction. Value. That's base rates. You want base rates, you wouldn't take safeties that high in the draft, roughly. There's so much fun to talk about football. Damn it, I'm afraid this is all we're going to be able to do is talk about personnel choices, but maybe we'll get lucky and watch a little football before it's all over. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thank you for the time for the whole team here. Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradloff. We'll be back next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.